Welcome to The World Awaits. Travel tales to inspire your wanderlust. I'm Kirsty Bedford, journalist, editor and travel writer. And I'm Belinda Jackson, author, travel journalist and columnist. And we're your weekly co-hosts. Welcome back. Kirsty and I are time travelling this week. I'm in Saudi Arabia right now and Kirsty's just landed on terra firma here in Australia after cruising around Scandinavia, literally cruising. <laughs> Thanks, Belle. We're so excited to bring you the news of our latest travels, but for now, we wanted to do a special Morocco episode. Our hearts go out to the people of Morocco following the earthquake that's devastated communities in the high atlas above Marrakesh, and we felt it was important to bring you some interviews from those on the ground about why it's so important to travel to the region. And as we've already mentioned, as well as not cancelling your travel plans, there are other ways you can help too. You could consider donating via tour company Intrepid Travel, which has launched an emergency appeal, um, and all funds will go to grassroots organisations to provide emergency relief and support. And Intrepid will not take a cent for the administration, so 100% of your donations go directly to those in need. But we're going to start the episode this week with a topic on everyone's lips in the travel industry – adult-only flight sections, with the news that Corindon Airlines, a Turkish-Dutch carrier, is about to launch an adult-only zone on its flight between Amsterdam and the Caribbean island of Curaçao. The seats will be at the front of the plane and there'll be 93 seats reserved exclusively for anyone aged 16 plus and they're saying that they will have walls and curtains to ensure the privacy. Not sure how well that'll work, but anyway, mm. let's, let's go with it. And it'll cost about 75 bucks Australian. Yeah, which isn't like, you know, isn't going to break the bank. Um, it's the first time for those aged 16 plus, but here in Australia, a Scoot, which is a low-cost Singapore-based carrier, has Scoot in silence cabins on its 787 Dreamliners, and they are um, for travellers over 12, and I've actually flown and enjoyed them. I, I actually think parents are the strongest advocates of child-free zones. <laughs> and also, Air Asia X has also carved out special places for passengers 10 and over with a quiet zone on its A330 long-haul flight. So it's what's interesting about that is that this is being led by two low-cost carriers. Mm, great, I love that. Mm. Um, and I have to say, I would very happily pay the extra money even more than the <laughs> than the <laughs> estimated 75 dollars for um particularly on a long-haul flight i've i've traveled with my kids a lot as you have Belle, and um i have to say we've been quite lucky because they're not screamers but um i mean i have loads of other stories i could tell people about what kind of <laughs> things they've done but they definitely don't scream um and um and there's nothing worse so it's not anyone's fault but if you have to hit the ground running at the other end and you need your sleep particularly when you're working on the other end I've just found that really challenging uh you know and like I said it's no one's fault it's just one of those things but um I think this is pure gold yeah I look I don't think it's a trend that's going to go away given you know declining birth rates in first world countries and and you know um recently I went to the launch of Virgin Voyages within Australia so steering away from planes and into ships if you don't have this cruise liner on your radar it's the one owned by Richard Branson and it's running adult only ships that are going to have an Australian season between Australia and New Zealand so um yeah, they are pitching it. They're actually pitching it very heavily on exhausted parents who need child-free time mm, so that nice. they can go back. They really <laughs> sell this message so they can go back refreshed and loving their children. 
so no slides on those ships. Um, well, if there are. They, I they, don't um, know about that, actually. I reckon they probably will put a few. It's very, like the promo stuff I've seen, they're very fun. Lots of <laughs> lots of cocktails and I reckon there's slides. <laughs> well, staying with luxury travel, leading Lux travel advisors Virtuoso have also recently released some new findings on the types of trips people want. Um, I'll be interested to see if you see yourself fitting into any of these big growth areas, Belle. And mm. first up is set jetting which is all the rage. So this is for people who want to go on the as-seen-on-TV and movie locations. So it's been around for decades. When I was in my 20s and worked for Tourism New Zealand, we had a marketing campaign around the Lord of the Rings trilogies as Middle Earth, which lots of people will remember. Um, and obviously it's still known, known that way. And that was just such an incredible success. And anywhere you went where movies were filmed, you could see people with actually walking around holding guidebooks in front of their faces of the Lord of the Rings locations. It was quite remarkable, really. Mm. Um, and it's an area that's just continued to grow. So it's a, such a popular travel sector. And as their research has found, it's increasingly still growing. Uh, and that's due to things like White Lotus, where the second uh, season was filmed in Sicily. And tour operator Family Twist recently launched an Emily in Paris tour, which is aimed at teen fans of the show. And of course, the list goes on. Yeah, I'm um, actually in Paris uh, earlier this year. There was, um, if, if you've got tweens that have watched the Ladybug series, um, you can go to the cafe where you know, Ladybugs, are, you know, so it's aimed at all at all ages and mm. stages. Um, indigenous tourism is also increasingly growing in popularity because people realise that to really get to get to know a place, you need to look and listen to the First Nations people. So places like Canada, where First Nations business owners and guides are partnering with tourism and boards and travel advisors it gives you a perspective from native artists naturalists and spiritual guides and they're seeing enormous growth and in australia there are more than 160 tours focused on aboriginal culture you know i was as you know i was in kakadu recently and um and we'll be bringing you an interview from there in the next couple of weeks as well and it was just so good to see um you know, to really experience Kakadu and Uluru has been very successful in this as well, you know, tapping into um, and, and showcasing something that's incredibly unique in Australia, which is the world's oldest continuing culture. You know, that's something that we should be celebrating, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had some incredible um, Aboriginal and Indigenous experiences too, particularly in Uluru. Um Cruising is another is another area that has it's long had a cult following uh, and um, showing no signs of slowing. And yeah. um, I think it's because, I mean, I was never a big, huge cruise fan, but I have been on a couple of cruises now and um, it's, it is very easy. You literally just hop on, unload your bags and, of course, you can travel to multiple countries and, that's, and, um, and it's all inclusive. So, you know, everything's taken care of. You've got food and all your alcohol and everything's included in it. So it makes, it makes travel very easy and interesting <laughs> kind of like, like you know seeing multiple countries like a Kentucky tour right fancy Kentucky tour yes but not on a not on a on a bus in your lovely spacious cabin with a balcony um, listening to the lap of the waves and Virtuoso yeah. says that it's also increasingly seeing more solo travellers coming on board for, on cruises and those taking cruises are actually getting younger, which is something I found actually I noticed when I, although maybe I'm just getting older, but I did notice when I was on the cruise that um, I was expecting it all to be sort of 75 plus and it really wasn't. Um, and the stats show that 86% of Gen Xs and 88% of millennials who've cruised before said that they would actually go again. 
Yeah, wow. And this one might not surprise you too much, but sports-centred travel is also on the rise. So that's travel for big-ticket items like the Grand Prix, Tour de France, you know, the Olympics, all of the tennis is booming. And particularly participatory sport travel is also a hot ticket. So, um, you know, you might go and watch the Tour de France, but then you will go and actually cycle the route yourself or, you know, take a ski with a former Olympian, which I think is probably... You know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's really an immersive type of tourism, isn't it? Rather than just sitting in the bleachers and watching a pile oh, of sure. elite athletes kicking a ball around while you skull beer from a hat, you know, that's got two big hands <laughs> on the top of it. <laughs> we are showing our age, but um, no, I actually do. I love the idea of cycling stage at the Tour de France or hiking somewhere that's part of a big event. Um, mm. You know, and there are loads of people who, of course, travel for marathons and other running events. I love that idea too. Um, yeah. And if you prefer active holidays like I do why wouldn't you just combine them like I don't see why why you wouldn't do that um because you can always add on a couple of days of recovery if you're the kind of flying flop person anyway but to me Mm. the best sort of holidays are the ones where you get out and meet the locals and hike and bike what uh which sort of area would you best fit into of those that Virtuoso has highlighted as growth trend areas Belle well, I do have to, you know, before you, I get painted as a total couch potato, I have actually, <laughs> I have actually cycled um, one of the legs in the Tour Down Under when it was first sort of kicking off. So, you know, and that was a real buzz because, you know, the, we all did it on our, on our treadleys and stuff the day before and then the pros skipped through and did it in a quarter of the time the day after. Um, and I thought that was really great because, you know, you felt like a champ on the route. You're like cycling it through and it was really cool. Um, I don't know, maybe I'll take the Indigenous thing because I'm really, I really, think that you know it's an enormous growth area and um and it is an area that hasn't had the attention that um you know that it should so i'm going to plump with indigenous tourism yeah and look i've i've been converted a little to to cruising too so um let's just <laughs> let's just go with all of them and yeah okay right uh, yeah. good yeah good plan well done you're listening to the world awaits subscribe through our website at theworldawaits.au As we mentioned earlier, this week we're focusing on interviews with those who were on the ground when the devastating earthquake in Morocco struck. The Tourism Review reported in May that tourism revenues in Morocco were up more than 50% in the first quarter of this year when compared to the bumper pre-pandemic levels of 2019. Four million tourists arrived in the country in the first four months of this year, an increase of 20% compared to 2019. And tourism accounts for more than half a million jobs in Morocco. The country had a really focused campaign to attract visitors and tourism professionals said they were expecting better results in the coming 2023 season. Those numbers have of course now been threatened by the September earthquake. Our first interview this week is with David Mannix of Arcadia Expeditions who had lived in Marrakesh for five years and had just returned a week before the earthquake struck. He talks to me about the fear he felt when the quake did strike and why it's so important that you don't cancel your trips to the North African country. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks, thanks, Kirsty. Good to be here. Uh, so let's start by just tell us a bit about um, your uh, situation and how and how you um, were basically just returning back to live in Marrakesh, where you had lived before in the um, sort of days before the earthquake struck. 
Yeah, that, that's right. I, I've, I've lived in Marrakesh before. I, in fact, I had five years here um, working for an Australian travel company. Uh, and then I went back to Australia for about four years and I'm back again. And um, I guess as luck would have it, we, uh, we arrived about a week before the quake struck. So um, it's, it's all about the timing, I guess. Yeah. So, so what, what were you heading back there? If, what was the reason you were heading back there? Yeah, my, my wife's actually from Marrakesh. So uh, we met when I was living here um, and we decided to come back, especially after COVID, uh, things were pretty hard for her. Um, Moroccan families are usually very, very close and my wife's no exception. So we really came back to spend time with my family-in-law here um, after being locked up in Australia for so t- such a long time. But I love Marrakesh, I, I know it well and, and I was very happy to come back. So we, we, are, we are planning on spending the next few years uh, here in Marrakesh. And tell us a bit about your, because you're in the travel industry and what, what about, a little bit about your business and what you do. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, look, I, I, I was working for Intrepid Travel over here in, in Morocco. And then when I returned to Australia, I started my own business called Arc- Arcadia Expeditions. And we specialise in, in sort of small group uh, adventure travel, but more based on storytelling. Now, just like everyone else in the travel industry during COVID, we really struggled. And I actually paused the business um, at the end of COVID there um, and are, are planning on, um, you know, at, at some stage reopening that business. But at the moment, I'm just um, doing some contract work for some other Australian companies and um, uh, we'll, we'll get to um, back to Arcadia and, and, and start that probably uh, in, in the new year. Yes. And you do tailor-made um, tours, don't you? You you do sort of high-end tailor-made tours? Yeah, we do luxury luxury tours. We often go to quite remote places. We, you know, we were going to places like, you know, Cuba and Sudan and um, Iran and, and uh, we were trying to tell stories really. So we, we have small groups um, led by a, a world-leading expert on, on that story. Um, so the idea was like it was a, a documentary without the film crew where we really immerse ourselves uh, in, into that culture and then we bring fascinating people along um, uh, to, to help tell that story. So another way I describe it to people is it's like a, a travelling dinner party where we're, we're moving a, around a, a country and a region and bringing in just fascinating people to to help follow that story and tell that narrative um, as we as we travel around. Yeah, great. And so tell us uh, exactly where were you when um, the earthquake struck and um, who, who were you with at the time? Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, I was actually at um, my house. I, b- I bought a house when I was living in Marrakesh before. It's been pretty much empty since COVID, but we, we moved back a week before the earthquake hit, as I, as I mentioned. And um, there's, we, we live in, a, I guess, a, quite a tall, narrow townhouse. And there's two bedrooms upstairs. My four-year-old son, Adam, was in one room and uh, my wife and I were in the other room. We were, we were still up. And then the quake hit and it was just, we didn't know what it was. Marrakesh is not known for its um, earthquakes and and no one can remember at a time where something like this has happened. So it was just surreal. The the building really started just vibrating up and down and and there was an extremely loud noise. It was like a aeroplane was on top of us. And then so pretty quickly, we did understand what was going on. And and the first reaction, of course, is it was our son. I, I ran into the bedroom I mean, thankfully, he slept through the whole thing. I don't know how. And the noise kept getting louder and louder. I picked him up. Um, and then we started running down um, to, towards our stairs, which go down to the, to the first level. And it was during that time where the sideways shaking happened. And it was just, it's hard to explain, but it was, uh, we were in the stairwell and it was being like, a, shot around like a pinball from side to side. So as I was running down the stairs with my son in my arms and my wife behind me, 
we were just being you know, shunted around from left to right against the walls. The, the sideways movement was extraordinary, um, as was the, the, the noise. So I, I really believed, I, I just thought, well, this building's going to collapse. There's no way this is mm -hmm. going to hold up. Um, so it was, it was the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my life. It was only, it actually lasted almost a minute. So it, it was quite a while. It felt like longer. Um, but yeah, we, we were really thrown around. My wife fell down um, a few of the stairs. It was that violent. Um, but luckily we, we got up um, and we made it to the front door and then we ran down another set of stairs um, to make it outside of our, our complex and everybody else was standing there. We were the last ones to arrive. So all the other residents were standing there just in absolute shock. Um, but we, we made it. The building certainly didn't collapse. Um, but uh, we, we, I waited about half an hour and then I, I, I went back in and there were just cracks everywhere in our, in our townhouse. I mean, every room has some pretty big cracks in it. Um, and, I, and we just thought, well, it's not safe to stay here. So um, we, we got in the car um, and we went to my family-in-law's place who live on the other side of Marrakesh just to see if they were okay. And they were, they were pretty shaken too, everybody was. Um, driving through the city was, was also surreal. People had just emptied onto the streets. No one was in their, in their buildings um, and everyone was just wandering around in a bit of a daze. Um, so we all slept in the car that night because no one trusted that there wouldn't be aftershocks or you know, knew what was happening with their building. So everybody slept in the car and we didn't get much sleep, but we, we got up the next morning and just tried to assess where we were. And it was just, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty harrowing. Gosh, I, you just can't really um, imagine, you know, or understand that situation until you're in it, can you? And, and Yeah, that's right. Yes, and like you say, this, that sideways movement must have just been so frightening. Um, mm. and, and so were the family, the family are all okay? Everyone's okay. In fact, everyone we know um, in Marrakesh is, is all okay, which is just, just fantastic. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, most people live in the new part of Marrakesh. There's an old Medina, which is about a thousand year old, years old, but there's also a, a new town, um, which was originally um, designed by the French. And that's, that's actually in, in great shape. As we, even just after the earthquake, when we drove through, everything was still standing. There was very little damage at all to the new town. So luckily, uh, most people I know do live in the new town. Um, and even the ones in the Medina were okay. Um, you know, the damage is probably not as bad as you may think. I think the media has really um, played it up a little bit in Marrakesh. Certainly in the mountains, the, the devastation is just truly horrendous um, with, with a lot of those isolated villages. But Marrakesh itself, look, there wasn't that much damage. There was, a, there was certainly a few buildings collapsed um, in the Medina. Um, but as I said, the new town and most of the apartment blocks, everything it was, was fine. And, and I've got to say, things are pretty much back to normal in, in Marrakesh at least. Mm. And not, not underestimating the, um, yes, like you say, that the villages that were levelled, uh, that have mm. been levelled and also the ancient ruins that have been destroyed and all, yes. you know, all of the families that, that, that have been, um, you know, are now homeless, but not underestimating uh, um, any of that. But like you said, do you think one of the worst parts is also now the perception to tourism because, uh, yeah. you know, while obviously there's been certain areas that have been completely um, decimated, it's it's the perception now is for people generally to um, of of the widespread damage that um, that maybe they may cancel their trips and and just not go there. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right there, Kirsty. It's 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 the big worry for all of us now in the tourism industry, and and in fact, just the people of Morocco. Tourism is one of the main sources of of income here as, as an economy. Uh, it's it's a nine billion US dollar industry here, and and it employs 
directly it employs about half a million people, but indirectly it's it's many more millions. So a, a lot of the population rely on tourism. So they they certainly need people to to keep coming back. So I guess one of the message I want to to tell people is that it is absolutely fine to come back. In fact, there's tourists here right now. Um, a lot of the coverage internationally has come from Marrakesh, so I think people are thinking, well, Marrakesh is not safe to go to. That's just not, not true at all. Uh, let, let me give you an example of some of the, the, the coverage I've seen. I, there, there's a great video going around Morocco at the moment um, posted by a, a French gentleman who's in the, in the main square of, of Marrakesh called Jamal Fanar, which maybe a lot of your listeners have been to. It's a very famous place, and uh, he's filming around the whole square, and then he gets to one um, small mosque on the corner there, which is which is uh, half collapsed, and the whole media is parked in front of that with all their cameras focused on that collapsed building, but nothing around. And, and I think that's probably what viewers see, and, and I understand why the coverage is like that, but it is biased. Uh, but what it doesn't show is that when you when you pan around from that mosque, life is completely back to normal. Um, the, the markets are open, the museums are open, the hotels are open, um, and everything is 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 absolutely fine. Yes, it will take time to to rebuild some of those Medina sites, um, and in particularly in the mountains, they they will struggle. But Morocco is absolutely open for business, and it's open right now. Mm. And so all of those people who who are reliant, like you said, so heavily on mm. on the industry, not only have some of them got the grief and devastation of, of maybe extended family who have been impacted and they've been impacted personally and the grief and loss um, that may be associated with this earthquake, but also now they have to deal with the fact that they have no income. Absolutely. Yeah, look, there's tragedy everywhere, there's no doubt. 3,000 people have lost their lives. You know, we consider ourselves extremely lucky here um, that we've escaped the worst of it. But yeah, it's, it's been devastating for so many families. Those mountain villages are really very remote. And, and the big worry now actually is the, is the cold. Winter is approaching here in Morocco and it can get extremely cold. But I have to say the, the, the Moroccan government has done an extremely good job along with the king here to set everything up. And uh, I'm really proud um, living here of, of, of what Morocco has done. And, and I think probably for all of us here who, who aren't born, natural born Moroccans, just the solidarity that you're seeing here. I mean, just ordinary citizens going out of their way to you know, buy as much as they can. They get in their own car and they drive up to the mountains. Where I live, um, which I was explaining before, where, where I was during the earthquake, that's quite a, uh, not, a, not a, a busy road up to the mountains, but it, there was traffic jams up to the mountains because everyone had just loaded their cars with supplies and, and headed up. So the solidarity, the, the togetherness that, that we've seen here is just, it just gives, gives me a lot of hope. But yeah, look, that, that needs to be supported internationally and, and there's two things people can do. One is to not cancel their trip and, and keep coming to Morocco and plan to come to Morocco to, to help that industry and those people who need it. And second of all, Morocco has to rebuild some of those villages and they're going to need international help. The King's put in some really great measures to help with um, uh, a fund to, to rebuild um, villages and, and individual houses and pay individual rent. So that's taken care of. But certainly, um, you know, if, if any of your listeners are keen to donate, the, the thing to do is to help um, in the rebuild of those mountain villages that are going to take place in the next six months or so. Mm. And look, let's just end on, I mean, as well as you talk about 
have talked about obviously the the beautiful culture and people there what are some of the things that people can do um and that you would recommend you know um what are some of your favorite things um and some of the things that that, you know you would recommend people to do um and to come and do and see and see and book book the holidays now yeah sure morocco is a very diverse country uh you've got you've got the sahara desert in that uh, eastern corner that's that's absolutely worth a few days. It's just a stunning um, um, piece of desert, and, and and there's beautiful camps and camel rides and all sorts of things out there. The Atlas Mountains, um, part of which is devastated, obviously, um, is just is is an, is a, a jaw-droppingly beautiful um, place with with incredible culture and actually incredible food too. I like personally, um, as well as Marrakesh, I love uh, a coastal town called Essaouira. It's about three hours west of uh, of Marrakesh, and it's got this it's a beautiful white-walled, uh, almost like a village on on the coast, which was at some stage occupied by the Portuguese. It's just charming. It's it's got so much character about it, and it's a, gr- a great place to spend a few days with some cool ocean breezes um, after some of the cities. But yeah, look, the, the imperial cities themselves, Fez, Rabat, Marrakesh. Uh, have great character. Make sure you stay in a Riyadh when you come here. Stay in the old Medinas. Stay in one of the traditional old houses called Riyads. Uh, there's nothing like it in the world. It's just such a, a magical experience to be staying in these walled cities and, and getting lost uh, amongst the mazes. And, and lastly, I would add just the food experience. Uh, Moroccan food is just sensational. People probably know tagines and couscous and and, and those uh, dishes that Morocco are famous for, but there's so much more more than that. And people pride themselves on on food. And as a, as a visitor to the country, you just get spoiled here with just incredible food choices. And and uh, I can't get enough of it personally. Amazing. Thank you so much. Let's just. Um really interesting and fascinating to, to talk about it and uh, and great to hear from someone who's actually on the ground um, you know and, and that you're able to advise people of those sorts of things and the fact that that like you say that they shouldn't uh, cancel cancel their their travel there so um, we wish you all the best um, with when the business is back up and, and going and and just generally at home there David thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome, Kirsty, and uh, and thanks again, and, and for giving me the opportunity to speak about Morocco. It's um, a really special place, and I hope um, I hope your listeners can support it. That was David Mannix of Arcadia Expeditions, and we'll put all the links of how you can get in touch with David in our show notes. Our tip this week is about where not to waste your money when you travel. Yes, so USA Today analysed 23.2 million Google reviews of the 500 most popular tourist attractions in the world. And that was spanning 76 countries and six continents to see how frequently the reviews mentioned the words tourist trap, overrated or expensive. And it lists those that are overrated and overpriced. We'll put a link in the show notes because you're going to want to keep these uh, in your mind. But the key findings were the Four Corners Monument in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado and Utah is considered the number one tourist trap in the world, while the Blue Lagoon in Iceland and Penang Hill in Malaysia are the top tourist traps in Europe and Asia, Mm. which I I don't know. I, I was up in Penang Hill recently and I didn't think it was... 
I, you know, I thought it was really interesting. And in fact, it's got some great, um, it's got some great eco um, opportunities up there. And then you can actually do these hikes. Okay, I'm going to totally dispel the myth on this one. <laughs> you can do these great, beautiful hikes through um, through rainforests up there where you see really sometimes you see bizarre animals giant butterflies colugos there's actually a really good cafe at the end of it so right i don't agree with that one at all but anyway maybe we we need to (laughs) maybe we have rose colored glasses on because i actually agree um because closer to home the most overpriced list included hobbiton movie set waitomo glowworm caves larnick castle and sky tower which are the ones in new zealand really um and i disagree with some of those too oh okay well, in Australia, Taronga Zoo, Port Arthur Historic Site, um, the Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary, and Mona, incredibly, no! um, Mona made Mona's the list. the best. I know. It was rated as one of the most overpriced and overrated attractions. Mona is incredible. And oh, it's yeah, been, I you agree. know, I, look, okay, like, well, I don't know about this one. Um, well, like, yeah. yeah, like they said, with, so with Hobbiton, I mean, look, it can be expensive. Um I just actually recently booked my 76-year-old mother and 15-year-old son on a trip to Hobbiton from Auckland, uh, which is about an hour and a half drive. And so it was about 450 New Zealand dollars, but they're driven down there from Auckland and it's a full day out. And I actually think, and I've been there myself, and it is incredible. It is just such a remarkable day out and it's so beautiful. And I think... If you're looking for something as a multi-gen full day out too, it's really mm. hard to find things that uh, you know you can that multi-gen travellers can do. So, if I think if you can find something that both an elderly woman and a teen boy can do together, then it's <laughs> probably worth the money. Um, and that actually included that cost that I said before that I paid for for them. It actually included so they are getting picked up from Auckland and driven down there, and then they I think they do get morning tea and they get hosted hosted uh, and. I don't think that that's um, uh, shocking. I mean, you know, it's not a budget thing to do, but it definitely is a one-off. And it's a, you know, if you are, I mean, the amount of money that you spend on things like Harry Potter events, you know, they are eye-pokingly expensive. So I don't think that's hmm. And look the, look, the Hobbiton's beautiful. It's a really large farm that's been, and they've retained all of the all of the Hobbit holes that were used in the movie. So you oh. get to walk around and and, um, and get photos in front of all of these different Hobbit holes. And the gardens <laughs> are meticulous. It's just, it's stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and mine is much the same. I think it's just a great, a great family day out. So uh, yeah, I, I do have to disagree with some of those. Although, you know, we are in the minority, Belle, because the uh, research covered quite extensive uh, numbers no. you know research wins um they all had a they had a couple of things too i mean some things like the mannequin piece in um in belgium uh i think and also the little mermaid um they were in the they came up in the results as well didn't they as as uh as uh, overrated tourist traps i would say jet as a general rule for travelers i would say avoid any statues of children urinating anywhere because i i, I can't see the lure myself i don't know about you Kirsty, but anyway i'm sure it's very historic well there is one, the there is one in the air valley which i in japan which i have to say is I wouldn't go there just to see the statue of the child urinating, but um, it is just a spectacular place to go. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out that one. But, um, but yes, I, yes, I, I'm with you. <laughs> I do remember seeing the mannequin piece, and just it was just surrounded by people just 
looking sad and and disappointed (laughs) and I was one of them as well. We'll put the link because there are a lot of places in there obviously and we couldn't talk about them all so we will put that in um, and that is um, uh, our tip to make sure that you can um, yes you can make your own judgment and obviously try and avoid the ones that are overrated and overpriced. In our second interview on Morocco, Belle talks to Abdullah Abgar, who is the head guide in Marrakesh for Buy Prior Arrangements, which has been leading tours through Morocco for four decades. Abdullah, welcome to the World Awaits podcast. We really appreciate you being here, especially at such an incredibly difficult time for Morocco. Uh, well, Bill, uh, thanks a lot for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for calling. You know, our, our hearts are with you. You know, we're, we're, we are very conscious of the tragedy that has affected Morocco now. Um, I just wanted to ask firstly, uh, uh, are you fine? Is your family fine? And is everybody from by prior arrangement uh, okay? My family, my family, myself, prior arrangement staff, everybody here is okay. Our guides, our drivers, people in the office, even our mountain guides, even the guy in the mountains and his family, uh, 70 kilometers from Marrakesh, they are safe and sound. Oh, that is such good news. Did you have did you have guests in Marrakesh at the time when the earthquake um, occurred? Well, uh, uh, let me let me just reassure you. After I finish with you this talk, at midday, at midday in a couple of hours, I have a city tour myself with my clients from USA, from America. I'm going to take them for four hours city tour of Marrakesh. And we have people arriving yesterday, the day before today, to the airports and doing their tours very normal. Uh, I want to make something clear, which a lot of people don't know outside Morocco. The, the earthquake that struck Morocco, at Mar- it was not in Marrakesh. It was 150 kilometers from Marrakesh because the high Atlas Mountains are huge, are long, thousands of kilometers. So that, that's where they would struck. It's 150 kilometers. So most of the losses that we have human, human or constructions, it was over there. In Marrakesh, I have to tell you, the situation is under control. Every, very few people died, few homes demolished, and that's it. That is, that is incredibly good news because so many tour operators are saying, you know, that it is, uh, for that, that, you know, they still want to, um, tourists not to cancel their, their journeys to Morocco, that there is, there, that people are always welcome, that they are safe in Morocco. And the best thing to do for the country is to continue with your travel plans. Is that right? Yes. Yes, you right. I have I have I have a lot of calls and a lot of WhatsApps and emails coming from people from all over the world to me. Most of them are travel agents. Some people they are now during my humble experience 25 years from all over the world, Australia, England, the USA, New Zealand, Canada. They all know and they have all I mean insisted on coming and they told me that the best way to support tourism in Morocco is not to cancel the tours. So they are coming. I have to tell you, October, there are a few cancellations. 
It's very normal. It's very normal. But still, most of people, they are so happy and they have shown their solidarity with Morocco, travel agents. They, they are all sending their guests coming to, to Morocco, even to Marrakesh. And and then outside Marrakesh, in the rest outside of Marrakesh and the High Atlas in the rest of the country, how how has it been affected? At, at if uh, it well, as I said, 150 kilometers from Marrakesh, um, and the other side towards the city of Teradent. I mean that section. I will I will say it's blocked now. Mm. It's blocked now. I mean, I'm not saying that tourists, they do go there on excursions, but still a lot of people, they have excursions to go there. Now they do a lot of things in Marrakesh, the activities in Marrakesh, or they go to Isawira, mm. the other side of the coast. So luckily Marrakesh position is so important. It's a good base for many activities. There are so much alternatives. I mean, even in Marrakesh, people, they can spend seven days easily doing different activities from historical tours, garden tours, museum tours, food tours, interior designing tours, um, workshop tours. The artisans are there. So it's there are so much alternatives and solutions. I mean, I, I personally have been lost in Marrakesh for days. So just, uh, yeah, in the Medina. So it's it's very easy just to lose two or three days actually being lost, which I think is possibly the best way to explore it is just to find your sure. feet, which which takes a long time in Marrakesh. And that's the, and that's the charm. And that is the charm, the charm absolutely. The yes, yeah. ab absolutely. Um, just, you know, this is a... This is a chance, in a way, then, for people to explore different parts of of the country, um, as you're saying, you know, to explore different tours within within Marrakesh. But then also, I mean, Esquera is is a really, you know, has been a popular place since you know Jimi Hendrix was there writing, um, you know, writing some of his great works as well. Is there in in other parts of in other parts of Morocco? Are you finding that there is growth in in new areas in in the country? Yeah, well, uh, I, I have uh, I have suggested for a lot of clients. They contacted me. They said to me, Abdullah, we we landed in Casablanca or in Tangier. They come from Spain or from Portugal, and I told them, look, they're coming to Marrakesh. I said to them, go to Chefchaouen go to Rabat, go to Fez, the big tours, the big tours, the international companies like Cosmos, Globus, Trafalgar. I mean, all these people that do Spain, Portugal, Morocco, they are still here. I have seen them myself. They are still operating there. I work with and they have so plenty of things to do 10 days, seven days easily. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it you know, it's it's such a rich country that you can um, even even just you know exploring the food in in Morocco takes um, just is is yes. so is so enormously complex and and the design yes. for me it is the design of the country. Um, so so out, uh, outside the the impact of the earthquake in the High Atlas, does that affect people who have been going there because it's such a hiking destination um, up there in the High Atlas? Is there an alternative for them to explore, given that you know some of the villages have been absolutely devastated and and you know we are so horrified to hear of the lives lost up there then to steer away uh, from different parts of the country well uh, just remember we don't have only the high atlas we have the middle atlas and we have the anti-atlas 
So thanks God, in this country we are blessed. We have three mountains. So people who love hiking, people who like to go for picnics, people who like to enjoy nature, people who love to see the Berber people, they are homes in the Middle Atlas Mountains, the environment affairs on the way from Marrakesh to Fez, you go to Uzud, you go to Beni Malal. So that's the Middle Atlas. So it's actually, it's not even far from Marrakesh. And people, they are still, they can see something in Marrakesh for lovers of nature. Did the earthquake affect the route going up to Mount Tubkal? Yes, Tubkal, Tubkal now, for the moment now, because because all the, uh, the donations, all the caravans that help people, the associations, the our association of tour guides in Marrakesh, uh, everybody's hidden there taking food, kids, um, winter is coming, so people are aware of that and there is so much, so much help, so much help. I just want to, 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 to tell you something, the visit of the King Mohammed VI to Marrakesh two days ago to Marrakesh, he came to Marrakesh and he visited the hospital and he met people just on the ground and he gives his instructions and orders so to make everything go smoothly and gently, which is a tangible proof about the spirit between the king and his nation. So there is more help, there is more support, there is, is very well maintained and under control. That is uh, yeah. that is really comforting to to learn. You know, I mean, Morocco is, well, as you know, one of the best-selling um, tourist uh, tourism destinations uh definitely in uh, you know definitely in Africa and North Africa and uh in in those in in all the world for particularly for tour guides as well so um the 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 king has been there the king is supporting uh the supporting um the people who have been affected by this is there anything else that we can do that that um to support Morocco at this time well, uh, Bill, the best thing to support Morocco is just uh, just telling people this, the situation, how Moroccans are ready and to serve people, to make everything uh, easy for them from accommodation, from airport, the airlines, to the hotels, uh, and also not to postpone or to cancel their flights or their holidays. I think from point of view, food and blankets, there is more than enough. People are helping with money mm. because now they are trying to build a kind of, I will say, waterproof um, shelters for people. The winter is coming in two months. Luckily, it's still warm in Marrakesh today and in the environment. But mm. we, we move to the second step, which is people giving donations to some associations, which is very well known, uh, like uh, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Médecins Sans Frontières, MF, Médecins, MSF. Mm -hmm. It's called MSF. So there are so many, actually, people, they know them and they are now available. People can support financially. Mm. This is the best way. The second best way is just to come to Morocco, because when we see them moving around, we feel that we are not alone, and we are not, and we will never be. Mm. I, I think that's a really valuable lesson for the the power of tourism, really, to yes. to connect yes. people and to help people as well. Yes.
So, so you're saying that the aid that has been provided is getting through, um, and yes. that people are being assisted now on the ground more than any time before. Oh, I have to tell you, this, this earthquake it just makes Moroccan stronger. The link, the harmony, people, it's getting stronger. Uh, it's already well known in the culture, in our culture in Morocco. We we talk we. We, we, we don't say I, we say we, starting from family to the community, to the neighborhood, to the city, and it goes all the way. Well, I, you know, it's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? You know, it's a hard way to learn um, yeah. the power of community and the power of support. But um, so we we really appreciate hearing from from you in Marrakesh and from all of your team at, at by prior arrangement, which has very strong links, of course. You know, it's an Australian company that's founded there, and um, and you know, Carol Pryor has been telling the stories of Morocco for the past four decades. Okay. I want to tell the world, the world, and Australians in particular, that Moroccans and Carol by prior arrangement staff in Marrakesh or in Morocco, they are waiting for them to assist them from the first step till the end. Thank you. Remarkable insights there from Abdullah Amgar. And you can learn more about Buy Prior Arrangement tours at buypriorarrangement.com. That's a wrap for The World Awaits this week. Click to subscribe anywhere you listen to your favourite pods. And where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm at Kirsty Wrights on Instagram. That's K-I-R-S-T-I-E Wrights, W-R-I-T-E-S. And where can people find you, Belle? You can find me at globalsalsa.com or on Insta at global underscore salsa. Thanks for listening. See you next week.